the most extraordinary thing in a frame is a human being. I would never even consider crying during the West Wing. And just appreciating people who are great. It's the best show of all time. Welcome to the Hollywood Adjacent Podcast, where two creators working in and sometimes aspiring to be working in Hollywood. I'm Bob, and I am a content creator and producer. And I'm Aaron, and I'm an actor and an acting coach and a producer. Aaron, I did not think this episode was ever going to get made. I have been so busy the last couple weeks. What about yourself? Well, busy's good. I actually have been busy uh, starting to audition again, which is good. Coaching been good have you done any in-person auditions yet no i don't think those are gonna come back for a long time those have been dying anyway because of technology i know your brother's been helping you out with some of your auditions do you have any tips since this is obviously becoming more and more of a thing you have to do every day do you have like a lighting setup that you just walk into or uh no i'm actually really fortunate my apartment has amazing natural light so it works great. Now, I did learn something new. Split Slate, which I sent you. Did mm-hmm. you watch it? I did not. So the one difficult thing about self-taping when you live alone during COVID is getting the full body shot for a slate, which slates shouldn't, you shouldn't even have them anymore because they come from a place so you would know who it is you're watching. Now everything's connected to a file. But I auditioned for something. Disney always likes slates. So it's a Disney project. So you needed the full body shot. So I just took a picture and my manager and I added it on to the end. And my manager was like, do a split slate. I'm like, I don't know what that is. I'm old. So I look on YouTube and there's terrible direction how to do it. But, uh, and then my friend did it for me. Um, it's essentially, your slate split screen with uh, a full picture. All right. Well, <laughs> awesome. That's all. Awesome. Well, I'm glad that you figured that out. I asked you. You're technically proficient. I asked like five working actors, how do you do a split slate? None of them had ever heard of it. And I bet you within like two weeks, everyone will be doing it. Oh, yeah. That definitely sounds like that's going to be the adoption rate. When I had to do an audition a couple weeks back for Jack in the Box, they wanted a profile, like, you know, a standard slate and then a full body. And so I had to, like, do this weird thing where the camera was, like, really far away. And then I walked Mm -hmm. back and then walked forward to the camera. And that's super unnatural. And it just takes a lot of time for the person watching it. So split slate makes a lot more sense. Pretty exciting. Well, Bobby, you say you've been (laughs) pretty busy. What, What have you been doing? Besides growing your hair. (laughs) I am super excited that I finally released the second of four special episodes for the podcast Creating Christmas. It's a Mother's Day special. I interviewed like the foremost authority on Mother's Day and I hired two voiceover actors and I scored the entire thing. And that came out uh, this last week. And I'm super proud of it because that's the direction I want to go with the work I'm doing. And it was the most involved yet. Well, congratulations. And thank you for letting me read for it. (laughs) You don't have an old English accent, actually. How do you know? (laughs) If you want to check out the episodes, it's on creatingchristmaspodcast.com. And I relaunched Quarrenstream. And that is on quarrenstream.in. I do have a funny story. So we can't see... Maybe you can put a picture. Bobby's hair 
is long. Long. <laughs> so I have gone back to hot yoga, which is my savior. And I don't even care if I get COVID and it's great. Like the showers are closed and people are in there showering and you're like, okay. <laughs> so I walk into the locker room and there's a woman in the men's locker room. And I see the side profile, long hair, like I physique looks like a woman's physique. And I say, oh, excuse me, ma'am. You know, this is the men's locker room. And the guy turns and he has a full fucking goatee. And he's like, <laughs> and I'm like, oh, sorry. I just saw the long hair. He's like, no, it's all right. I'm like, wow. Okay. Oh, I get that often. Often I'll be going to Starbucks or like a restaurant or something. And they'll be like, can I help you, ma'am? Just because I'm out of the corner of their eye and then they feel bad and like I literally couldn't care. Mm -hmm. But so the thing with the hair is I've been talking about cutting it for weeks because um, I don't like sleeping on it anymore. But uh, I'm going to do that locks of love thing. My hair is gray, so I can't do locks of love, but I'm going to do something similar. So a locks of love thing. But I have to be able to cut off 10 to 12 inches. So I need to like take good care of it for like a couple weeks to get that like shiny glow into yeah, it. And then I'm gonna I was it. noticing the shiny glow is not there at all. <laughs> That's what I'm going for. At all. Yeah, I really have to work on it. No, I'm serious. I've been I've been like brushing it more now that I'm going to gift this to somebody and like this is going to be their hair. I like I want to take such good care of it. Who do you gift that to? So people who have uh, cancer uh, treatment, so they lose their hair. Uh, people who have just different kind of medical issues that can't afford like a good wig. And they don't need gray hair? Well, Locks of Love is mainly for kids, okay. but a lot of places don't take gray hair. Or they'll take it and they'll use it to sell to regular wig companies, and then they'll use those profits to make more wigs. Whatever. I'm going to donate it and it's going to go. It's either going to do something good or it's not. I That's as much as I can do. I can't donate my hair. <laughs> yeah, millimeter hair is not exactly what they're looking for. Unless there's a market for chest hair, then I can. <laughs> Have you been uh, watching anything going on TV? I watched The Way Back with Ben Affleck uh, the other night, which I really enjoyed. Uh, th he did a really good job. I don't know how he gets into character to play an alcoholic, but <laughs> really good. Um, I did enjoy it and I thought he was really good in it. I am going to watch the WeWork documentary on Hulu. Yeah, I want to watch that. Yeah. And I've been listening to Jay Moore's audiobook, Gasping for Airtime, which is very entertaining. Really good. Have you watched For All Mankind? No. So... On the first episode of Corn Stream, uh, my friend suggested I watch it. I've been told by like a couple people it's worth watching, especially as season two progressed, that people are like, See season two is so great. What's it on? It's on uh, Apple. I think it's like the big show for Apple. Um, so I it took a bit to get into the first episode, but now I'm in love with it. Do you know the story behind it? No. Essentially, it's as, it's if America lost the space race, so a Russian went to the moon first. That's the entire premise. And then from there, once Russia's done that, all these other things happen. So it's copying the show, What If Japan Won World War II, or Germany Won World War II. Yeah, you know, when Spencer mentioned that uh, on Cornstream, that's kind of what he said. He's like, it's just like Man in the High Castle, mm. uh, or at least the same idea. But this is really, really good. Joel Kinnerman is the lead who I really liked in The Killing. And um, it's, I don't know, I can't turn it off. It's, I watched three or four episodes a night. It's, it's really, really good. So you might want to check that out. Okay. I really like 
the killing. That's the Seattle detectives. Uh, yeah, it's uh, him, and then uh, there's a woman as well. I can't yeah, remember her name. Who's great? Mm-hmm. Um, she was in World War Z with Brad Pitt, played his wife. My problem with the killing is that every episode they're like, "Oh, this person's guilty," and then they spend half an hour. Oh, he's not. And then it would just start over the next week. So they went through like the entire cast and you're like, okay, I'm losing interest. I kind of agree with that. But I really think that the bigger problem was they did that season to season. Like they finished the first season and you're like, oh, wow, they they figured it out. Great. And then the second season's like, what if that guy didn't do it? And it's like, right. We just spent, you know, 10 hours getting to the point that he did do it. Why do we care if he didn't do it now? Right. Since we're talking about television... I know it's been a couple weeks, but I want to talk about the Oscars just for a second because I really feel like some of the social media stuff that came out after the Oscars, specifically regarding uh, Anthony Hopkins, I think it finally gives me an idea of what the Oscars is nowadays. And I want to talk about that for a second. Okay. Well, why don't you comment on what what, you, what do you think happened with social media and Anthony Hopkins after? Recap that. I think so. Uh, for anybody who's listening to this who didn't watch the Oscars or doesn't pay attention to the Oscars, uh, Anthony Hopkins won. Which is 99.9% <laughs> of the world. but uh, Anthony Hopkins won, but everyone wanted Bozeman to win. And it's like a post-Thomas Oscar award. And there was a big outcry afterwards about how Oscars so white or there's no progression in, in Oscars, that sort of thing. I think based on that, what people want the Oscars to be is to be like the intellectual elite statement about where things should be in society. It's got to be like the most radical, uh, most in line with like leftist politics uh, winner, because that reinforces the idea that we're building a world that is closer to the world that we want, as opposed to being a true like, who is the best? I mean, how could you compare these different performances in the first place or how you compare these different films. So the, the winners doesn't really matter anyway. If you're nominated... They're not winners. Yeah. You get selected. So if if you get nominated, you obviously did a fantastic job, right? Beyond that, there's no point to winning besides... I don't know. Maybe there's no point to winning at all besides just having a feather in your cap. But uh, I really think looking forward from now on, people should just choose the person that fits in most with the social politics of the day. I think that's what would make more people happy. And then maybe they'd be lame. I don't know, but no one's watching the Oscars anyway, so they might as well just be a mouthpiece for the the, um, educated elite. Well, then it's no longer an award show for best filmmaking. But it's not that already, just like you said. Well, it's similar, but my beef with it, and it was unwatchable, the guessing game with music was like the dumbest thing I've ever seen in my life. Uh, my issue is they made best actor last and ABC said they made the calculated risk that Chadwick Boseman would win. But film historically has always gone last as it should. It's about the best film, not the best individual performance. And then they switched it. No one knew, Hey, and I'm politically, I'm a moderate. I thought it came off really bad, Hollywood elite, like really bad, and it was also boring. Explain, explain what you mean by it came off bad, Hollywood elite. Uh, we're smarter than you. We're all vaccinated. Uh, this is how we do it on set, which is true and great. I, I, I just didn't think that there was a 
reason to have a glamorous award show and glamorous in quotations right now. And especially the Oscars is no longer glamorous. It's not 1962. Mm -hmm. So I, I just thought, especially like no one has seen these movies. Like, you know, there's that statistic that came out this week that in the first week, Mortal Kombat made more money than all the best picture nominations combined. I'm sure. Which I'm sure. I'd say that's another problem, though, that that's like a common statistic that I've seen quoted on blogs that are not related to film or just people post that on Facebook where it's like the only thing that the general populace is measuring things on now is money, where I think there's an artistic value that's been intrinsic with what the Oscars have always been that is being forgotten in this idea that like, well, it didn't make as much money, so it must not be any good. Well, I think it's always been if the less money it makes, it's good. <laughs> you know, we've had no, we've had a lot of movies, you know, 30 years ago, Silence of the Lambs was a home run at the box office. Mm -hmm. Most winners now there will be blood is one of the best films I've ever seen. How much money did that make? Yeah. Yeah. Not much. But it's got I mean I think we're all going for different things now. I don't know. And if we're if we're just trying to make the award show about inequality, make up for lost time, it's a losing battle. But no one watched it. I mean, I don't know any actors, very few people watched it. I do want to give a quick shout out to my dear friend Fiona Walsh-Hines, whose film Promising Young Woman won an Academy Award and she co-produced that and it was I get, was lucky enough to watch it with her and really really exciting so that's awesome that's awesome congratulations that's so cool yeah and she also threw you under the bus and said you didn't like the movie based on our podcast which she's been listening to and uh, <laughs> she said you don't get what's going on well she's welcome to come on the podcast alright were you ready to jump into this week's film each week, we choose a film and break down a key scene from that film, looking at the nuts and bolts to understand how the pieces make the whole. And then, hopefully, we end up taking away some tips of our own. Today, we're going to be talking about the movie, The Sound of Metal. You sound great. Your hearing is deteriorating rapidly. We'll come back. Ruben. The world does keep moving. It can be a damn cruel place. But those moments of stillness. All right. The tagline is a heavy metal drummer's life is thrown into free fall when he begins to lose his hearing. And before I go through the who's in it and directed by, do you think that's a good summation of what this film is about to you, Aaron? Yeah, that's the cliff notes of it. I uh, know. I think that misses the whole point of the film. I, I agree. I, I just said it was the cliff notes of it. All right. It was directed and co-written by Darius Marder, maybe best known as the writer for 2012's The Place Beyond the Pines. This was his feature narrative debut, and it's been two decades in the making in one form or another. It stars Riz Ahmed from The Night Of and Rogue One, Olivia Cook and Paul Racy. The DP was Daniel Bouquet. And notably, it has won 81 awards, including two 2021 Oscars for Best Sound and Best Editing. You can watch it now on Amazon Prime. All right. So jumping into this, I think saying that the whole, I think saying that the heavy metals drummer's life is thrown into free fall. Yeah, that's like the cliff notes. But a lot of it had to do with 
his life adjusting to being deaf. Less about trying to figure out who he is and everything, and more just adjusting to this life of being deaf and how to get through that. Um, and in that, it's a really interesting film because it incorporates all these different dynamics of a deaf community that I didn't know that much about. Uh, but this was your pick. You've wanted to talk about this for a couple weeks. So what did you love about this film? I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like this film. I took away watching it post after watching it is how much I continue to think about the film. And I know several people who feel the same way. Um, I loved the opening of the film, a very interesting opening. I love how angry Riz Ahmed was the entire film, which typically for me, that gets really one noted, but it wasn't because his struggles came through so much. And, you know, you'd said the films about him dealing with being deaf. And one of the themes in the overall film is it's not about being deaf. It's about how you handle everything mentally. Deaf is just another challenge in life. And he had challenges in dealing with everything from the get-go of whenever his drug abuse started. Um, and then I, I really like the education and about hearing impaired issues that I had never thought about. And then about the implants. There's so much to unpack in what you just said. So let's just go like uh, piece by piece. Going back to what you said at the very beginning, you've been thinking about this. This made you think for several days following the film. So what, what did it leave you wondering about it? What did it leave stuck in your brain? How fucked he was. You know, to play a spoiler at the end of the film, uh, he got the implants. I always assumed if you got hearing implants, they just work like headphones. You know, you heard. And that's not what it is at all, apparently. Why did that stick in your brain? I can't tell you. That's art, though, right? It, it makes you have a reaction. It makes you think about things. What would I do in that situation? Would I rather, you know, people always ask, you know, would you rather get deaf, deaf or blind? You know, it's a quiet world. Like, it really, it makes you think of that. And then the humanity struggles throughout the film are really interesting. I think what sticks to me about the end of the film when he decides he, he, to turn off the cochlear implants uh, that stuck with me is he works so hard to become this thing as a musician. And then that gets taken away from him. And then he enters this world that doesn't accept that he has lost something. And then at the end he turns it off and there's no way for him to get back to the world that he had. I just think that's like the bleakest, bleakest ending to a film. Yeah, it is. But that's sometimes life. He put, which the scene we're going to discuss, mm -hmm. he foreshadows, he creates a self-fulfilling prophecy with a lot of what he talks about in the scene and he's you know he's going to be an outcast from both societies mm -hmm. the hearing society because he can't hear and mm -hmm. the deaf society because he's gotten the implants and that's frowned upon because it makes it seem like being deaf is a handicap which they do not believe it is did you know that before going to this film? No. You talked about the 
what you learn from this film or what this film teaches you. And you've talked about that for the last couple films. When you watch a film like this, a narrative film, do you think a lot of the stuff that the film goes through is based in reality? Do you tend to try and walk away from these things having learned something? Or uh, do you assume that most of this is like just whatever needs to be said to fit the film? This particular film felt incredibly real. This felt like a scripted documentary, you know? It, it was just so real. The director of this, uh, he his background is all in documentaries. And so he did a lot of work to make this look and feel like a documentary. He even talked in some interviews about how shooting this felt like shooting more felt more like shooting a documentary than he expected. Mm-hmm. Um and so I think for that and some of the films that we've been talking about this year and have come out in the last couple of years, I do feel like there's a strong movement to make sure that there is a reality in the story being told. But for me personally, I, n- I never assume what I'm looking at on screen is based in reality. It might feel like that to me, but I, I rarely, I would not think watching this film, oh, I am learning something about deaf communities. I think I'm just watching a film about two people. One of them has to be happens to be deaf, and this is how they're responding. Right, but you could tell there was such layers of realism. Like what? Like, give me an example. When he showed up to Paul Reese's farm, the communication, that dialogue was as real as real can be. And Paul Reese, who plays Joe, I believe both his parents were deaf. They are. And I think it's worth noting that uh, this film, when it was in production, they were having trouble deciding who to cast in his role because it's a unique opportunity to have a deaf actor have a large part, right? He got the position because he grew up in the deaf world. Do you think that this person necessarily needed to be deaf or do you think that a a hearing person could have done it? Or do you think there's a realism that needs to be acknowledged when you do something like this? Well, let's first of all talk about acting, right? That he was just fantastic. Um, But I like the fact it brought up lip reading. That he could speak fine. You would never know he was deaf. Mm hmm. But he couldn't hear, and he had to read li- lips, which is more of an educational thing. You know, I know it's, and I'll probably get canceled for saying this, oh, they should have hired a deaf actor. You know, when Michael C. Hall was on Six Feet Under, somebody asked him, are you really gay? And his response was, well, no one has asked if I'm really a mortician. The point of acting is realism, in my opinion. You hire the best person for the job, in my opinion. And if that person would have been deaf, great. There's no one who could have played this part better than Paul Reese. I mean, he was good. Your thoughts? Before we get into him specifically, I don't know if the comparisons you're making are fair anymore because I think Six Feet Under came out in the mid-2000s, maybe even sooner later than that. We live in a different society culturally than we did then. And Jeffrey Wright played a Puerto Rican guy in Shaft, which he never could do today. Yeah, I, I just think we, we live in a world where, I mean, especially if you look at these films and you're expecting to take away a knowledge. I think the 
it's hard for me to say it. I've seen stuff on Facebook lately as a white male where people I know that are in production are like, if you're a white male, you should just not expect to get a job for the next 10 years. You should like step back. I, I think there's a, a part where, at least for me, when I became an actor, I, when I decided I wanted to become an actor, I wanted to play all these unique roles and do all this kind of stuff. Uh, I think though in film nowadays, there needs to be space to let the reality in. And I, and I think in Paul Racy's case in this film, he's the unique like thread of the needle, right? He did, but he does both sides of it. And I think the reality of him having, uh, had the, having had the childhood around deaf parents lent to the realism of the situations in ways that are indescribable. He might he uses his hands a certain way because he's been doing sign language. For, it's more comfortable. They're relaxed. His hands are looser. Little things like that that read in a different way. Um, but I don't think we should expect that. Let me say, I think we should expect that the people portraying the people on screen should have the attributes as what they're being described. At least for me, looking at something like Nomadland and this push for documentaries, this director coming from documentaries, I think that reality isn't, it's limiting in the career potential for someone like me, but it offers all these new opportunities in this more realistic filmmaking style. I don't know. It could be wrong. What do you think? Listen, if you want to cast a handicapped person, a deaf person, great. You make the best film you think you can make. Um, but let's go back to Brian Cranston with the upside. You know, the handicap community was very upset about that. They wanted a handicap actor. And I'm like, well, you still have to sell a film, right? And if there was a movie star handicap actor that could open a film, then yeah, maybe. You know, actors act. And if we want to just get into this, everything has to be so politically correct, so woke. In every moment, I think it's going to kill all of art. Not just this art. I don't know. The problem with the whole thing of there has to be a handicapped person that can open a film. Well, first, there has to be a film that takes a chance on a lead handicapped person, which I feel like we're seeing a lot more television shows that are willing to take a like a 10 episode arc into a very specific 10 episodes is a different commitment, I think, than a film. And that is so niche. But I guess going back to my point, I'm just saying you can't say that you need a, a handicapped person in to be able to open a film. There needs to be more options for handicapped people to play those roles before one's going to be open, able to open a film. In an interview that Paul Racy did about the uh, deaf community, he talked about how his agent has like a handful of deaf people on their roster and they can't get work. Like the agent will go out of the way and be like, you should hire this deaf person for this role. They're going to be really strong in this, this, and this way. And everything will go great until they find out they have to have an interpreter on set. So they have to hire someone else to bring them Which there. is an additional cost. Yeah, it's an additional cost, but there's still... If 
if the opportunity is created, then eventually there will be a deaf actor that opens a film. I mean, look at what's her face. That was the the Miss America who's deaf, who now has done dozens of television guest appearances and that sort of thing. I'm just saying there's a space for uh, both these things, but there have to be more options. I think this idea of an actor in today's world being being limited by what they can do in reality, maybe we're going to a place where like the purpose of putting someone on camera is less about capturing them doing an amazing moment and more about capturing the reality of the situation. I don't know. I mean, because then you have the situation with uh, Anthony Hopkins, right? He's nominated. He won for... um, The father. For dementia, and he doesn't have dementia. So is that not... is there a way that he can depict that correctly with not having dementia? I, I don't know. I think this is a very circular well, argument. Dementia is going to be hard because <laughs> you, you'd be like, wait, are we making a movie? This is great. I love show business. Um, going to be hard on dialogue. And the script supervisor is going to have a really tough one. To bring it back to acting, though, another thing you brought up in the very beginning of uh, this segment was uh, Riz Ahmed's anger throughout it. Mm-hmm. So I got a question for you. Do you think that him having the different levels of anger, bringing all the different variants of anger into the role, but keeping it fresh so it never got stale, do you think that's more to do with acting, direction, or uh, the overall production and script of the film? You know, you never know what they do and what they edit, right? What they film and what they edit. But he had so many different levels of anger. He was just an angry person. He was a, or came off as an angry, broken person. Mm-hmm. You know, I coach, so most people I coach maybe don't have his range. We can say that nicely. That if you're going to be angry, you're going to have one note of anger and stay at 95 miles per hour of anger. And he did how he made breakfast in this film. He was angry. Slamming it down. You know, he, that was who he was, banging on drums. And then he had different levels. So how do you coach levels when you, when you have a scene that one of your actors is working into that's obviously could be played just screaming, yelling, or just super like fuming the whole scene? How do you coach that? How do you direct them through finding levels within themselves? I, I think there's something about subtlety, right? And Paul Reese does that, did that beautifully in this film. But about screaming, I'll tell you, I had an audition. I used to audition a lot for Criminal Minds, and unfortunately, I never booked. And if anyone listening has auditioned, they were on a small trailer on Kyoto's lot, and like you would go in and you could hear everyone. So, and this is a good lesson for all actors. You know, they started. The first time I saw them was for like literally one word and then it grew and I went in. Now I was going in for guest spots and I never booked, unfortunately, but I go in and it's a guest star of a guy who's just screaming. He's the killer. It's a torture scene. He's just screaming. So everyone is screaming. So I don't want to listen to other actors audition. So I told the assistant I was going to step outside and if they could just call me when it was my turn. So I go in, and I do the polar opposite. Even though I know 
the part is for screaming because it's TV and it, there it's it's much more of a programmed show. And the casting director says, "Aaron, that was great. Now, can you do what we want?" <laughs> absolutely no problem <laughs> and then i screamed my head off for three minutes and walked out um i think this was all riz amid i mean yeah really good i mean he learned sign for this i would imagine he learned drums or maybe he was a drummer that's another thing so back to what we're talking about if you're making a movie who played uh the lead singer of queen should they have hired a real singer? If we go down this road, we're never going to stop. No, I think I think you're I think you're deliberately throwing in monkey wrenches into the idea that if a person if you need a person to be deaf, they need to be deaf in real life. I think that's different from if you want a drummer. I think you look at the most salient characteristic for Bohemian Rhapsody. The most salient characteristic was someone who looked like Freddie Mercury and could carry a tune. It didn't matter they could actually sing because that's not what the f- film's actually depicting. They just happened to be singing in the film. Is a former person of the Bucktooth Society. I think they should have hired somebody who needed great orthodontal work. Again, I just think you're picking out these small characteristics and saying the film needs to be based on that. Whereas you look at what the film is actually based on, what the what the the most salient characteristics of the character are, and try and be true to that representation of them. I think that almost might speak to what you said about Six Feet Under, where no one asks him if he's a mortician, everyone asks him if he's gay. Well, his character's arc, Michael C. Hall's character's arc had to do with him coming to terms with being a gay person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so was it as important he's a mortician? No, because you hold the scalpel like this, you do this thing because you're making bread, you're cutting open a cadaver, you're arranging flowers, it doesn't really matter. Your hands are doing this thing while the subject is something else. And so it's depicting that subject correctly. I don't know. I think that's, I think that's why... Uh, so like you said, Rizamed went through six months of, uh, training to be able to do the sign language correctly. And then even then on set, they were giving him tips on how to do it a little bit better and be more fluent in it. Actors, you know, if you do a war movie, you go to a boot camp, you go yeah. to, and I'm, but, I'm not, yeah, would... I'm saying hire the best person for the role. And if that person is deaf. What I'm saying is Rizamed added a certain level of authenticity because he was a hearing person who's been a musician who now is learning sign language for a role, but also to get through life. You know what I mean? He had several connections with this. I don't know. I, I feel like there was a certain amount of authenticity to that. Um, but just like we said with uh, the guy playing Joe, it's just having had those parents, he, he adds this level of depth to it, I think. And then you get this question of, like, you know, what's best? I mean, when you're like, hire what's best for the role. Well, just like the film we were working on, Birds and Barbed Wire. I wrote this film uh, where it was uh, a love story between uh, a transsexual female and a male. And I had specific things that I wanted the character to do. Had we been able to go through with production and hired a, a transsexual actor, I think we would have had things on set that would have been different than what I had in mind with the way they went, but they might've been more honest to the actual experience of a trans person. So it'd be hard for me to say, well, this person did it better because this person did it more authentic. They didn't, they weren't true to my vision, but we came up with a vision somewhere in the middle. You know what I mean? 
I, I don't know. I mean, but then again, you come down to scenes like the scene we're going to talk about where you need to be able to access your emotions, which is different than your authenticity. And we have to also, it's about acting and can a person act, you know? Yeah. And I would have personally given the Oscar to Paul Reese. I have no problem with it going to Daniel Kaluuya at all. He was, mm -hmm. you know, I thought he was brilliant. We talked about it. Uh-huh. But this, this character moved me, like really moved me. So let's take that to the scene we're talking about today. Joe was so strong in each scene he was in, uh, but this scene is definitely his shining moment. Um, though I do think, like I said, he was strong in all the scenes. The first scene where Joe and Ruben meet, he is so relaxed and calm, but there's not as much emotion and not as much as stake. So it. I don't know. It maybe is a less uh, bright star, but this scene we're going to start at is uh, 122 and runs to about 128. It's when Ruben comes back to the deaf community, having just had the cochlear implants, and he sits down to discuss the implants and ask Joe for money. Um, the first thing that sticks out to me about this scene, uh, from an acting standpoint and just as an audience member, is how tired Joe looks. He looks so exhausted. He's so comfortable and just exhausted in that moment. And as I said in another scene, I feel like those are the hardest things to capture of someone just being calm, but having a complete presence at the same time. And we talked about levels. Um, when Ruben walks in, Joe's excited to see him. He says, you're back, and, but it's still subtle, right? It's not, you're back. He doesn't jump up and hug him. It's subtle. Um, just something about this scene that I didn't pick up the first time watching it is how everything comes full circle. And just, I'll, I'll point that out as a recurring theme. But you're right. When he walked in, Joe does nothing, and it's so powerful. And his range of welcoming him at the top to rejecting him at the end and he doesn't do it that differently. It's very subtle, but it's a complete rejection, obviously, at the end. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, I think what we're really watching in this scene, speaking of how subtle the rejection is, is we're looking at two characters with a fundamentally different understanding of their relationship. I think we're looking at two actors that are coming at this from different ages and two characters that are doing the same thing. Well. Different actors or character? I think it's the characters. No, I think it's the actors. as I think it's both. They're both coming at this scene from different ages, different situations. I think going back to the 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 difference between the way the characters see each other is Riz Ahmed is a younger guy. He's coming into the scene looking at like, hey, you've helped me out. We're all helping each other out. This is how this works. We're friends. And then... But uh, then Paul Racy is looking at this scene like, I'm a much older person. I'm looking at you as someone who's, oh, you're shaking your head. What, what don't you agree with? Well, no, I disagree with that because there's other young people there. I don't think age has anything to do with it. I think it's just the fact that Ruben is rejecting being deaf. I think it's. I think that Ruben. I think that's the surface layer of the scene. But I think Ruben's rejecting being deaf, but Joe is looking at this as we're not best buds. We're working on this community thing together, and Ruben doesn't understand that. 
he Ruben thinks I can screw up and come back because we're all friends and we're family here. And Joe's like, we're not friends and family. We're doing this other thing. I disagree with that. I and I think it's about the behavior that's pointed out that you're talking like an addict. That that's an addict's behavior. And yeah, is it? It it's the character because he's an addict. And going back to that behavior, not because he's deaf or that he doesn't understand consequence for actions. Yeah, so I, they are completely coming from a different perspective because one doesn't see anything wrong with being deaf, and one does. I'll be honest, that line, the you're, you sound like an, an addict, did not make sense to me and felt sideways in the scene to me. Okay, and I, uh, let's, let's get to that because I do want to talk about it. I also, subtlety, Joe's disappointment, you know, Ruben is so cocky. I did the deed. And, Ruben, and Joe's like, what deed? I don't know what you're talking about. And he's like, I got the implants and he's so proud of himself. And the subtle disappointment Joe has. And whether it's sorrow that he has to now reject Ruben from the community. Or he knows how this is going to end. Especially that Ruben's a musician. Mm. He's not going to be able to hear the same way. Uh, Really good. Then Joe asks, how do you get the money? And then he says, okay. And I think Joe was done with him at that point. I don't think he would have said another word. And Ruben goes ranting, much like an addict. He's talking about how insulting. He's so insulting. He says, if I stick around here with my life, what am I going to have? Nothing. Which is a self-fulfilling prophecy because he circles back to it. If I disappear, no one will care, which is how the film ends. And by his own actions... That's exactly what happens in a foreign country. And after the rant, Joe, I think, comes, is a person caring, but acting as a therapist, not a friend or a family. And he asks about the stillness. And Joe is so still in both mind and body there. And Ruben can't sit still. He's all over the place. Um, and then how honest and caring and heartfelt Joe is when he says, I sincerely hope this works for you. Really good. And then we get to the cross of the sea. See, I think fundamentally my problem with this film was, and it comes out in this scene, like you just described, the film doesn't give Ruben any credit for having established himself as a musician. Ruben's worked really hard to get where he is. He loses his hearing, and then the film says he should be fine with just life as it is there. Where he spent, you know, a decade, at least four years just with his last girlfriend, putting together this band. They've got a record deal, all this kind of stuff. They got together when he got sober. Yeah. Because the first question Joe asked, how long you've been sober? Four years. How long have you guys been together? Four years. Right. But you got to assume he's been playing drums longer than four years. He's been working. Oh, at this. sure. So, Is he good? Are they good? That's. A, I mean, I think that's a. I think that's a separate question. I don't think you can judge. I think 
I don't think you can judge their music in a film like this because there's no time no, spent I, on development. Yeah, I'm just saying they just they have a record deal. They are touring. They are able to support themselves doing this. I think the film ignore if the film acts like those are not accomplishments and that everyone should be able to move on uh, without taking into account that some people work their entire life for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's fundamentally a problem with Paul Racy's character is that he is unable to acknowledge that someone might need something else in life while still being deaf. That's a great point, but I don't think that's what the, I don't think the movie is about their music. I think it's about his struggles and then deaf just is an additional struggle. I completely agree. However, the film is also about their music. And so I feel like giving them this super strong backstory and character you can't ignore that or you just don't make them musicians or just make them like floundering musicians. Anyway, I just think, I don't know. I like this scene. I just think there's so many conflicting things going on as far as what we're hearing and seeing in this. I do agree that it is, this is about like Ruben struggling with his things, but they have these scenes where he's struggling with himself to the detriment of some of the backstory and some of the story they've laid out. I feel. Okay. The scene's over for the most part. And then Ruben asks about the money. So we're circling back to the money. And I didn't realize when I watched it the first time, I love this, that he calls him out. From where I'm sitting, you look and sound like an addict. And for me, I found it to be a moment of clarity. And... You know, Ruben Field says, you know, he doesn't want to be questioned. Long explanation about getting the implants. He was right. Asked for money. Says he's cool. Says he can easily pay it back. His girlfriend's father's rich. It's easy to get money. It's nothing. Like, that's a total con. And I really, at that moment, was like, oh, my God, right. The guy's still an addict. Yeah. He keeps trying. He apologizes for asking for the money and then immediately back to, can I stay here? That's an addict's behavior. Yeah. And also, you know, back to your point about experiences, Joe has been through this the exact same way. He lost his hearing suddenly, Mm -hmm. but he was grown, had hearing, and then it was taken away. So he's been down this road before. And then his saying, and I'm going to quote here, Belief deaf is not a handicap, not something to fix. All these kids, all of us, meaning him, and how he took it, that he had, they have to be reminded every day that deaf is not a handicap. Mm -hmm. Um, And I really got that Joe is the leader of that community in this moment. And he cares. His life is obviously this, you know. Um, um, Let me ask you this, though, because I was confused by something. When Joe says at the end of this, in your current state at this time, is he referring to Ruben's mental state or the implants? And if he has the implants taken out, will he be welcomed back? That's a good question. I think so, but I don't... I think getting them taken out would be a much, much bigger deal. Well, 
based on how the film ends, that's kind of what it's <laughs> looking like. Um, and I also, you know, if he does get him taken out, we can have a sequel and this can even be a franchise. <laughs> so looking at this scene f- with a different budget or different tone, would you have made any changes? No, would like budget. This film, I mean, obviously every movie needs more budget. We don't know what sacrifices they made. But it would have cheated the film if they had endless money to make this. Mm -hmm. The subtlety of the whole film is wonderful. Even, you know, the gigs, we can't tell how big or small they are. I think, as you mentioned earlier, it's not so much about the music. My only thought was I would love to have seen their life fleshed out a little bit more, where we saw more of the gigs, we saw more of the crowd, that sort of thing, because they kind of do avant-garde metal music. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like that would have really pulled harder on this thing that they were not trying to stay. If I if they fleshed that out more, it would have become even more distracting. Yeah, I don't think that's I don't think that's what this story is about. They are this ha- happens to happen to musicians. Mm-hmm. If anyone loses their hearing, it's pretty tough, obviously. And is it tougher that it happens to a musician than a surgeon? I don't know. Um, but it's about, and it's really a movie about the calmness of mind, which Paul says, or excuse me, which Joe says when they immediately sit down for the first time. He's like, it's not about being deaf. It's about what's in your brain. Mm-hmm. I think looking at this scene, it would be interesting to think about putting this scene in other places. When Ruben comes back, if he runs into Joe around the kids, if he ran into them at their AA circle, if he ran into them at dinner, like what how different these scenes might have played out and we would have seen this crowd reaction or he would have seen more of what Ruben would have lost. I think it was interesting just to make it a very simple two-person scene. Joe's just sitting at a table and he walks in. So we don't have any of that. It's just literally a relationship between these two people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this, Joe's place was a place specifically for deaf people who are addicts. Mm-hmm. Super niche, right? Super specific there, yeah. Like <laughs> anything else? Anything else you want to shout out about this film? I, I just I was really moved by all the acting, by the story. And how do you do you think he's ever turning? So the film ends. He turns off the implants. Do you think he ever turns them back on? Me as a person has to imagine that he does because he just spent forty or fifty thousand dollars on them and it's something he can get used to. He wants to play music. I'm sure there's a way to do drumming with them. But I think the fact that it gets to a point where he's more comfortable with them off at the end of the film speaks more about how he might be embracing this side of him as far if he I think if he uses them again, they are a tool, not part of him. You know what I mean? It's not like I can live life with these ears now. It's that I have a tool that I can do certain things with, but I don't need them all the time. And he can probably drum again deaf because he says he said he could do it like off the beat, knowing where it is. And it's a it's a really good life lesson. Money doesn't cure all problems. Yeah. You know, if you're wrong in the head before the money, it's not going to help. Uh, but I, I really 
I was really moved by this film. Well, I'm glad we finally got to talk about it because it's been a couple weeks and you were so blown away at the very beginning that I was very anxious to watch it myself. But you didn't like it as much as I did. You know, we talked before we started recording about the questions that it's that stuck with you. I don't know. I think this is a really, really hard film to look at from the perspective of someone who's still trying to make these things come to fruition because it does do this bit of ignoring the power of what he accomplished before going deaf and so i think that's troubling to me it doesn't i don't think it really takes into account the dreams he lost out on he's just supposed to kind of roll with the punches and so that that's what so that was hard but overall i thought it was a very strong film i liked paul racy let me ask you if ruben hadn't gone deaf you think his life works out perfectly i watched the end of the show little fires everywhere uh, last week it's a show on Hulu Reese Witherspoon produced it she's the lead um, it's got a ton of actors in it um, anyway there's a part of it where there is one woman who gave up her child and she is suing to get the child back and uh, the lawyer representing the adopted mother um, is explaining to his wife uh, why she shouldn't be worried about the outcome. And he says, because people like the other mother don't win. He's like, we're going to win because people like that don't win. I think Ruben is one of those characters representing one of those types of people that just doesn't win. He puts out the album. It's avant-garde metal. It's good for avant-garde metal, maybe. I don't know. Let's say it's amazing for avant-garde metal, but it there's only so much you can do with that. So you live out of your bus. But then what I'm doing is I'm putting what I want in life onto him. Maybe he's super, super comfortable living out of a bus just making music. A lot of people are. We watched a whole movie about people living out of a bus. So, Is there anything in his behavior that says he's content or comfortable with who he is? I think the dancing in the morning when they get up in the morning and they do the dancing outside of the thing, I think that's something that says they have found the sort of peace in this. At least he has. She clearly hasn't because when she goes back to the dad, life straightens out for her immediately. I think she was looking for a way out a long, much before this happened. I think this is, a, as I said, you know, I said it at the beginning, I think Ruben's a broken man and I think it would have caught up to him eventually somehow um and maybe going deaf can end up saving his life you know and maybe that's what joe was hoping for the whole time and it didn't because you know joe said it too joe's like i lost my family not because i went deaf because of the beer good film watch it support films like these all right well thanks so much for listening uh, links to some of the interviews we mentioned and our other episodes are available on hollywoodadjacentpodcast.com. If you liked or didn't like what we had to say, reach out to us. We'd love to know what you thought about the movie and about our show. Aaron, where can they find you? Pontus on Instagram, E-O-N-T-I-C-E. And I'm Bob. You can find me on Civil Matador on all the social medias and civilmatador.com. And we will talk to you next time. Thanks for listening. <laughs>